0: How do I set an agenda for a goals of care meeting? What information is helpful to have for a family meeting? And what are the steps I need to take to orchestrate a meeting?
1: Join us as we consider these questions and more on this episode of Medical Timeout. Welcome to Medical Timeout, a podcast where we unpack all things palliative care. I'm Rashmi Khadilkar. And I'm Chin Lin Cheng. Today, we'll be discussing the basic structure of a Goals of Care meeting and how to successfully run a meeting no matter what you have to talk about and what emotions you're met with. Those are lofty goals. But we want to help create a framework for successful family meetings. Because this is such a meaty topic, we'll be splitting it up into two episodes. Today, in part one, we'll be talking about how to set the stage and how to prepare yourself for a family meeting. In part two, we'll talk about the meeting itself and about how to navigate disagreements and emotions that might come up.
0: Rashmi, I did an informal survey with our hospitalists a few years ago, asking them what was the skill they felt they needed help with the most. And overwhelmingly, the response was navigating a goals of care meeting. Many wanted help de-escalating. Many just said that it's very anxiety provoking. Some said they were not comfortable with discussing bad news or prognosis. I remember that anxiety. Do you? I do, um, especially
1: because when I did my medical training um, in that time and in that place, um, palliative care wasn't nearly as well-defined of a specialty as it is now, and we really didn't get much training on these topics at all. We didn't get a lot of practice. And the stakes for family meetings can seem so high. You're talking to patients and families the patient's getting sicker, you might have reason to expect that there's going to be a lot of difference of opinion or a lot of emotion. Um, It can be really, really
0: challenging and really scary. Now, for those interested in having a very solid foundation um, and structure for communication skills, there are local and national resources. Vital Talk is a very well-known communication training program um, for clinicians. A local Rochester program um, that is really wonderful um, is called the ACT course, Advanced Communication and Training, and our colleagues at the University of Rochester actually created it and run it. Um, I really encourage all UR Medical Center providers to take this course. It utilizes well-trained moderators and standardized patients, which is really gold standard um, for role-playing. We'll put up some information at the end of this podcast um, that shares some of those communication skills that we'll be talking about. Um, the core skills to learn um, uses the mnemonic, actually MVP. So M is for medical situation. Seek mutual understanding of the medical situation. Mm-hmm. V is for values explore patient and family values and we keep harping on this. Everything has to start with values-based conversations. And P is for plan. Um, come together after you talk about those things for a plan, um, a goal concordant uh, care of plan. So without getting too deep right now into
1: the weeds of communication skills, we want to empower you, our listeners, with some basic practical principles that will alleviate the anxiety that we all might feel when we have to have serious conversations with patients and with families about their health, their illness, really sometimes about life and death. The reality is that the more you do it, the better you'll be at it. So we will share some of our key pearls and some of our key phrases along the way. So, Chen Lin, let's pretend that we're being called for a consult for goals of care. I and mean, let's talk through how we approach this and our thinking step by step. So, we are being consulted to help with goals of care discussions for a 65-year-old man with a recent diagnosis of metastatic pancreatic cancer. He was admitted to the hospital with uncontrolled pain. So in a previous podcast, we talked about the nuts and bolts of how to call a palliative care consult, what kinds of information you want to give. So this is what the primary team is telling us now. They're calling us now because they are concerned that they don't, they don't think that the patient really understands how sick he is. His family doesn't really understand how sick he is. His wife keeps asking for second opinions and third opinions and keeps asking about more treatment options. The oncologists are telling him that he can continue to get more cancer treatment if he can get stronger. We don't think that's realistic. The physical therapists are saying that he needs rehab, but we, meaning the primary team, aren't sure that he is able to do any rehab. The patient is still full code, and they're still worried about giving him opioids for pain and dyspnea because they're worried that that's going to worsen his condition. So
0: as the palliative care provider who's getting this consult, where do you start? It's a lot. And so let's unpack this consult a little bit so that we can think through what battles to pick, right? So number one, it sounds like code status is a concern, although we're not really clear if anyone's actually ever talked to this man about his end-of-life wishes. Uh, Number two, lots of cooks in the kitchen, um, and we're not sure what the patient knows or understands. Uh, Number three, current care plan of rehab and get stronger. Um, doesn't seem realistic. Um, And it feels like there's a carrot being dangled here. And number four, we need to do some education to the primary team uh, that treating pain and dyspnea should never be affected by a patient's code status. So obviously, I'm going to review the chart. I'm going to take time. I'm going to read all of the uh, relevant uh, notes. But there's really three very important pieces of information that I arm myself with um, before entering every uh, consult. Um, Number one, Does the patient have anything written, any written advance directives that might help us understand what his values are or get an idea of whether or not anyone's talked to him about these things before? Number two, does the patient have capacity? So can he speak for himself? Can he make his own medical decisions? Um, And number three, who are the key stakeholders here? Um, Who has been involved in terms of family or friends? Who is the designated surrogate decision maker? And we should never assume it's the person standing at the bedside. And who hasn't been involved but wants to say, understanding a patient's social structure and family dynamics from the get-go is really critical. So for this case, Rashmi, let's say we find out that the patient has no advanced directives written in the chart. He has no healthcare proxy form. He does have capacity. And he has a wife, three children who are involved in his care, as well as siblings who are local. I'm going to fast forward the consult a little bit. You've done the initial consult. You know that a family meeting is the the best next step. How do you introduce the idea? So you might remember
1: that usually when I do the initial consult, um, I do talk about part of our role being to help patients and families um, talk about goals of care um, and that that often involves bringing in other people who are important to the the patient um, in order to help make these decisions and talk through these situations. Um, I say that, you know, we want to take a medical timeout to make sure that everybody is on the same page. So I've already planted that seed for bringing in other people. Um, and so that means that when I ask uh, the patient something like, would it be helpful if we were to bring in your wife, your children, or any other loved ones to help talk through this with you, patients are prepared that that might be coming. Um, and they're al- almost always very receptive
0: to the idea. That's an important step that you mentioned, asking if there's anyone else who'd want to be at the meeting. And I don't think we should assume that it's family. Um, It could be a trusted friend or a clergy or a church or community member. Um, You want the patient to feel supported no matter what. Um, And you want the person to have people he leans on uh, in times of crises close by as well. So the meeting is set. Attendees are set. You've taken the time to review the chart, Um, current hospitalization notes, outpatient notes, um, social work notes, and chaplain notes are also very important and helpful to review. What do you do with all of this information? Um, What information do you need to arm yourself with specifically um, entering into a goals of care meeting? So like you say, it's really important to review the notes from
1: all of the different disciplines um, and, and from different phases of care, both inpatient and outpatient, because if it's my job to help uh, coordinate care and and to communicate with the patient and family. I need to have a bird's eye view of the situation. I really need to see the whole forest. So I need to know what providers are involved and what are the different providers saying. What are the realistic paths forward for this patient and what does each path look like? Um, we sometimes talk about what's the best case scenario and what's the worst case scenario and then again what's the most realistic scenario going forward. Um, and because we or whoever's doing that family meeting um, is often who will speak to prognosis. I need to have some sense of what I think that the prognosis for this patient is. I do arm myself with all of this information in case it comes up, but I'm also prepared not to talk about any of these things if the patient doesn't want to talk about any of these things or if the family doesn't want to talk about these things. But you do need to be prepared with the big picture stuff. You need to know
0: what's going on, the broad things, not, not the minutiae. Right. And, and just as you said, you know, I think of myself as a story collector first and a physician second. Um, Every single human has lived experiences that affects the decisions they make um, and how they live and how they might want to die. So I need to understand those lived experiences um, before I can truly understand how I can help them. So I always say, think of this first meeting as a reconnaissance mission. So uh, think of it as getting in and getting some recon. Get information that might help you understand where they're coming from. Um, It's not a meeting for you to word vomit tests and labs. Um, It's not a one-way street. Um, If you find yourself talking more than you're listening, then you need to stop talking and start listening. Um, I always tell our trainees that the best skill that a good palliative care provider can have is to read a room. And change your approach based on what you're seeing. Um, so we're like James Bond when he walks into a room. We're checking people out. What are they wearing? What are they saying? What's their body language? Um, where are the emergency exits? I'm just kidding. Um, so we need to adjust ourselves to um, and our approach to accommodate what we're being met with when we walk into a room, and that's really important. Yeah.
1: So This entire episode has been full of some important pearls that we hope will be helpful to you as you plan goals of care meetings and family meetings going forward. Remember that in the next episode, we'll be talking about some of the language that we use and ways to navigate the emotions that can come up when you're talking about really difficult medical situations. But let's take a little bit of time to summarize what we've discussed today. So when you're planning a family meeting, you've got some basic homework that you need to do in advance. You need to find out what advanced care planning documents already exist. You need to have a sense of whether the patient has medical decision-making capacity. Um, And if the patient doesn't have capacity, then you need to know who the surrogate decision-makers are. And as you said, we can't assume that the person who's standing at the bedside or even that it's the spouse um, or the child is the correct surrogate decision-maker. We need to know who who that person is. In addition to that surrogate decision maker, there may be other people in the family who, uh, or or friends, who the patient trusts. Um, and so what you want to do is gather people um, who the patient depends on and, and trusts to help in this decision making process. Um, have some flexibility about how you're meeting. Um, you know, it used to be that we would we would meet almost always at the bedside of the patient or in a in a room somewhere down the hall. Now we've got Zoom, so be willing to use the technology that we have available to us because it it lets us accommodate many more people. Think of the meeting um, as an information finding mission. So. You might want to start the meeting saying something like, can you tell me what the other doctors and nurses have told you about what's going on with with you or with your loved ones so that we can make sure that everybody um, has a similar understanding of what's going on. Um, And if you find yourself talking more than you're listening, then stop. Pause. Take a breath. Take the time to read the room um, and adjust your agenda or your expectations or your goals based on what you're seeing and hearing from the people who are in the room. That's a really good summary. Thank you. So there's a new segment that we um, wanted to add to our podcast, Um, and that is that we would like to address um, with, with every topic issues surrounding diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI. So when we talk about goals of care discussions, family meetings,
0: what are what are the important DEI issues that we should be thinking about? There's a very important one, which I, I try to do every day in my own practice, which is um, leave your implicit biases at the door. So I actually have a ritual that I do myself before I uh, enter a room. I go to the sink and I wash my hands. And as I'm doing it, I'm taking some deep breaths and I am intentionally and purposely trying to erase my brain of the things that I've read in the chart that might bias me, Um, any thoughts of people like them, whoever they may be. um, It's an intentional thing that I do, and I think it's really important to do. Um, And I'll give you an example Um, that I always give. So I um, teach residents. Every few months, I give a one-hour lecture. The lecture is on surrogate decision-making and healthcare proxies. Um, But I tell this story of uh, a man who had been intubated um, during COVID, so can't speak for himself. And he has seven family members who love him very much, who all want a say in decision-making for him, um, but none of them agreed with one another. It was one of the most contentious, Uh, family meetings that I think we've ever been involved in. There was yelling and crying. There were threats. There was table pounding, wall banging, um, and security had to be called multiple times. And after I tell the story, I quickly ask the residents, now, while you were hearing the story, what race or ethnicity were you imagining this family as? And honestly, overwhelmingly, a lot of them said a black family. And um, that wasn't the case. This was a white middle class family. And so that just goes to prove that we all carry implicit biases inside of us that we may not use or it may not really affect um, the way we practice medicine, but they they live there. And whether you are intentional or not, they will affect the way you interact with these patients. And so, um, so that's what I mean by leave your implicit biases at the door. Um, and and that's I think a, a really important DEI um, message that we want to put out there. Mm-hmm. Um, now on to our segment uh, where we talk about pet peeves. Do you have something that drives you crazy about how people run family meetings? So we've talked about
1: being prepared for a family meeting, um, which can mean it can mean having an agenda, which you know meaning that you have some idea of what you're hoping to address, um, what you're what you're hoping to talk about, but it doesn't mean that you should be going in expecting to push your agenda. So it really drives me crazy when I see a person who's honestly totally well-meaning um, and is really trying to do right by the patient and the family, when they get into the room and they just dive right into trying to bring the patient and family around to what, what they, the provider, feel like is the best course of action for the patient, I I really wish that they would take some time to explore the context and the background and the and the values of the patient and the family because again we'll be talking about this again and again values based discussions values based discussions so um, it's it it makes me a little crazy when um, when people try to push their own agenda without hearing
0: from the patient and the family first I I do understand um, that sometimes having an agenda is a little bit like a, a- safety blanket for people because because these meetings can be so anxiety provoking it might be comforting to go back to this agenda that you've set in your brain um, and if you get flustered you know you go back to that checkbox uh, list that you have in your brain but that's a really good point that it has to start with them um, and if if you have to throw your agenda out the window you have to be prepared to do so uh, and maybe you just talk about gardening all you know the, for that first meeting yeah. um, and then that might give you a lot of information there as well I have a hard time sitting through family meetings when other providers and I and I use this word and uh, word vomit uh, labs uh, tests results. Um, it continues to focus on minutia when really we should be doing broad strokes and bringing people back to the big picture. Um, so you know nothing against statistics, but. Um, when sharing information becomes a one-way street, um, it's not a great way to conduct a family meeting, um, and that just kind of drives me crazy sometimes. So we've shared a lot of me- a lot of information in a
1: one-way fashion. So now we are going to stop talking. That is a wrap for today. Um, Going forward, we would love to hear from you. Please send us any questions, comments, topic suggestions um, by emailing medical underscore timeout at
0: urmc.rochester.edu. This podcast is supported by a grant from the System Transformation Fund through the Safety Net and Program Supports Office with UR Medicine. Thank you to Dr. Kevin McCormick and Nancy Scott for spearheading the grant and for their commitment to palliative care education. Thank you
1: to Levi Ganji for the music, and a big thanks to Genesee Valley Media for recording,
0: editing, and producing the podcast. And thank you for taking this medical time out with us. We hope you'll join us next time when we'll tackle part two of Goals of Care Discussions, Navigating Words and Emotions. Have a great couple of weeks.